Hi, I'm Paul Jay. Welcome to the analysis.news. Please don't forget the donate button, uh, the subscribe button. And if you're watching on YouTube, well, right now you won't even be seeing this because YouTube has banned us for one week for uploading any new videos. Uh, so if you are watching, you're probably watching on our website or one of the other video platforms, which we are going to increasingly make use of. Uh, as you may know, uh, and I'll be putting, uh, posting an editorial, hopefully, uh, eventually I'll be able to get it up on YouTube, explaining why YouTube has suppressed uh, three stories of the analysis.news, uh, claiming that we spread false information about the 2020 elections, claiming that the elections were uh, the result of fraud, which of course we said exactly the opposite in all of those stories. Um, but uh, you'll take a look, uh, look out for the editorial. I'll, I'll be doing about this soon. Uh, at any rate, today we're going to talk about the potential coming war, some people think, uh, with China, as outlandish or as terrifying as that prospect may seem. Uh, so join me in a few seconds uh, with Colonel Larry Wilkerson. As reported in the New York Times, Daniel Ellsberg released a classified 1966 study that exposed, quote, American military leaders pushed for first-use nuclear strike on China, accepting the risk that the Soviet Union would retaliate in kind on behalf of its ally and millions of people would die. Dozens of pages from a classified 1966 study of the confrontation showed this. Well, let me just make this clear. This is a study of what took place in 1958, that there were real plans that at least were being contemplated by the American military to strike China with nuclear weapons over the issue of Taiwan. Now, the quote from the New York Times continues, the government censored those pages when it declassified the study for public release. End of the quote. Ellsberg believes that the lunacy found in the plan for nuclear war on China and a dispute over Taiwan still exists. Ellsberg says, said recently, quote, the issues that led to the 1958 crisis between the U.S. and China have never been resolved. Both countries are now ramping up confrontational rhetoric, and most importantly, the strategic rationale that led the U.S. to consider nuclear war then remains exactly the same today. You shouldn't be confident that the current calculations are any less crazy. Tensions over Taiwan have sparked a nuclear response from China. The Washington Post reports that China has begun construction of more than 100 silos for ICBMs, quote, that could signal a major expansion of Beijing's nuclear capabilities, end quote. In recent years, Chinese officials have complained that their country's nuclear deterrent is losing credibility because of nuclear modernization programs underway in Russia and the United States. A massive renewed atomic arms race is advancing at full speed. Admiral Stavridis, who was the 16th Supreme Allied Commander at NATO and is an operating executive at the Carlyle Group, one of the biggest equity investment funds with lots of investments in the military sector. He writes in Time magazine that, quote, China and the United States today are on a collision course. 
no less an authority than Henry Kissinger said just over a year ago, that the U.S. and China are in the foothills of a Cold War. Our assessment, this is Stafford is speaking, is that both nations are rapidly ascending the slope of that metaphorical mountain and will likely find themselves in a full-blown Cold War-like status in the near future, end quote. Stavridis writes that by the mid-2030s, this could lead the two nations to a hot war and even a nuclear exchange. That's a major player in the industrial military complex, contemplating the U.S. sleepwalking into a nuclear war that would end most life on Earth. Now joining us to discuss how close the world came to nuclear war in 1958 and just how close we are to it today is Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson. He's the former chief of staff to Colin Powell at the State Department and the Joint Chiefs. Thanks very much for joining us again, Larry. Thanks for having me, Paul. So what do you make of what Ellsberg says, that, that, that the logic, the strategic logic of 1958 hasn't changed, that, that the lunacy is still in the strategic thinking? Um, and, and, and generally, you know, how, how dangerous was it in 58 and how dangerous do you think it is today? Let me say three things. Uh, one, and I'd, I'd never want to uh, question Daniel Ellsberg, or his credentials or his veracity, but um, one, I could tell you some things about Pentagon planners, war planners in particular, contingency planning, operational planning, so forth, what we generally call war planning that would scare you just like that would. And yet I wouldn't contend that that was the mainstream thought at the time the plans were being developed because the military always worst cases planning. Second, I could tell you also that that probably was the mainstream thought. <laughs> and Daniel's right in his construction of the 57, 58, 59 atmosphere in the military. And I would hasten to add, thank God that Dwight Eisenhower was of that military and was president of the United States and was there to do what George H.W. Bush did, for example, with uh, Paul Wolfowitz's plan when he passed it over to the White House, send us back to the crazies in the basement at the White House, H.W. Bush said. So there was no way that was going to come to fruition with Dwight Eisenhower. Douglas MacArthur had... Talk about that that whole period in 58, because it's certainly... And, and, and what was happening with Taiwan and China. Why was it even being contemplated? It was a scary time period because we didn't have anything but an idea that China was an ally, growing ally, incredible ally of the Soviet Union, which of course was our big bugbear. And at that time, we had gone through the very painful and torturous who lost China ordeal which, as you know, ruined a lot of people's lives and careers, uh, almost ruined George Marshall's, of all people's career, because he was blamed vociferously by the right wing of the grand old Republican Party, and others too, for having lost China, along with a number of other people. Um, so it was, it, was a, it was a tenditious time. It was a terrible time, really. Um, and it was a time when, too, and this gets to Elbsberg's point, the military had generals who, like Curtis LeMay and others, who still thought, had always thought since the first explosion of the atomic bomb and the explosions over Hiroshima and Nagasaki, um, that it was just another weapon of war, a bigger, 
more powerful weapon to be sure, but it was just another weapon of war. I mean, we had Davy Crockett's and other things all over Europe. We had atomic demolition munitions, mines, Paul, nuclear mines that we were going to plant and blow a hole in the ground so a Soviet tank column couldn't get through. I mean, think about that for a minute, how insane that is. And yet that's what we were doing. Um, this was a time that was an extremely dangerous time. And again, I come back, I'm glad Dwight Eisenhower was president because there was no way he was going to go along with any of that. Uh, Douglas MacArthur wanted to lace the Korean Peninsula with nuclear explosions so that when the 8th Army was fleeing south after the Chinese, 300,000 Chinese volunteers, uh, contrary to his intelligence, entered the war and pushed the Americans all the way back to the original line of contact, uh, he wanted to lace the peninsula with nuclear weapons so that no one could come through there. It would be so radioact radioactive they couldn't come through there. So these were, these were nuts, in my view. They were nuts, certified nuts. Um, and Daniel's point is correct. But let me come to the third thing. I think this Taiwan-China scenario is probably the most dangerous scenario, which you and Daniel suggested, because of the very fact that if we go to war, neither of us will win. And so it will resolve itself in which side decides, or both sides deciding to use nuclear weapons. Every war game, I, I've told you this before, every war game I ever participated in when I was on active duty, and it was quite a few, it used to be the, the standard war game for the joint community when we were going joint in the education environment in the military, um, ended up with the civilians playing the leaders on both sides, Chinese side and American side. And the Chinese leaders were very versed in China's policies and, and thinking and so forth. It ended up in nuclear weapons. And inevitably the civilian leaders, in one case, as I recall, it was Bill Perry, um, said, we're not going there. Nope, stop the war game. And, and we finished right there and did a hot wash up and an after action review. It always goes nuclear because we cannot do anything to one another. My, Marine, my Marines characterized, characterized it this way, the shark and the elephant. Um, the elephant was China, the shark was the United States. The shark ate China's Air Force and its Navy and the elephant ate everything else about the United States that wasn't peripheral to that struggle. Um, so you had your navies and air forces devastated and you're sitting there looking at one another and the shark can't come ashore and the elephant can't go to sea as it were. And so what do you do? Well, you say as one game ended up, let's use some uh, cruise missiles with nuclear warheads at that time, Tomahawk Ds. Um, let's shoot some Chinese cities with nuclear weapons. Uh, stop the game. Boop. So what you wind up doing is coming to the only inevitable end to that game is an exchange of nuclear weapons. That's what makes this so dangerous. And let me go to your point earlier that you made in the introduction. I said this before on your show, I think at one time, um, the Chinese made a decision under Mao Zedong, uh, a, a smart decision that they would make no more nuclear weapons that were necessary for a deterrent. Because Mao said they were useless weapons. All he wanted was a few to keep people from attacking him with nuclear weapons. And he made that famous statement about you shoot yours at me, you'll kill a hundred million people. I'll shoot mine at you and kill all your people virtually. And I'll still have 600 million left, you know, whatever. They've changed their mind now and they changed their mind for one explicit reason. There are other reasons like the influence of their military industrial complex and so forth. 
But really, the fundamental reason is the loss of arms control in the world. We and the Russians have been singularly responsible for that. And so the Chinese made a decision, and now you're seeing the fruition of that decision. They have to have enough missiles to out to ride out a first strike and then respond. And so that means a lot more nuclear weapons for China. This insanity is now picking up, accelerating, deepening the crisis that humanity faces with regard to nuclear weapons. It's our fault. It's the Russians' fault because we let arms control pass away. ABM Treaty first, and then the Intermediate Nuclear Force Treaty, and almost start new start until we renewed it. Um, so we're, we've, we're in a real situation now where we're back to the 50s where we have military officers who think nuclear weapons are useful. We have a situation where countries are facing each other, all of whom have nuclear weapons. And we have this situation in Taiwan, which is ripe, ripe for problems, ripe for catastrophe. Um, just to go back a bit, is it Ellsberg's take and, and, and yours that they were there were leading members of the military and not all and certainly not the uh, the majority of the uh, civilian political leadership starting with eisenhower um but that but there were some that actually contemplated that it's acceptable to have hundreds of millions of casualties i mean they were probably wrong about whether the soviet union would have come to china's defense uh, you know that's probably what we know about the real relationship of those two but they thought they would. And they still contemplated that it would be okay to take hundreds of millions. They, they also knew it by 1958, uh, even though in truth and, and even American understanding, the Soviet Union didn't have much ICBM capability to attack the United States, it would have, they could have wiped out Europe, Western Europe. Uh, and, and even then these American military leaders say, okay, that, that's acceptable. Is, the, is, is that, first of all, correct take on LeMay and others who, who re, were, you know, in very serious positions? I mean, he ran STRATCOM, then he, you know, the Strategic Air Command. And is that lunacy still in the military leadership, at least some of it? This is why you have civilian control of the military. I mean, fundamentally, this is why you have civilian control of the military. And this is why every single president since we first got the atomic bomb has decided and continued the decision to keep nuclear weapons under civilian, not military control. There are, in a phrase, nuts in the military, and some of them wear stars. Curtis LeMay was a perfect example. Um, and to answer your question directly, yes, they believed that a nuclear war could be fought and won. And they damn well knew that uh, we're talking tens, if not hundreds of millions of casualties in such a war. And that was their responsibility, they thought. This is the way these people think. Their brain does not extend any further than this, that an exchange of weapons can be accomplished that at the end of the day will leave the U.S. victorious. What's that ask famous? Them, ask What's them that? to define that victory. <laughs> Well, there's that famous quote from LeMay's second in command. What's his name? Powell, I think. He says, right. at the end of the nuclear war, if there's two Americans alive and only one so Russian, then we won. We won. <laughs> we won. <laughs> and they're, out, I mean, they're really out of their goddamn minds. But uh, at, in 58, 
uh, they didn't know about nuclear winter, but now we do. And uh, now even a nuclear war between India and Pakistan was probably enough, according to some recent studies by some serious people like Robach and others, that that's enough to, to create a nuclear winter that would essentially destroy human agriculture and, and, and thus most humans. Um, do they not believe this in the Pentagon or are they you know, nuclear war, nuclear winter deniers? Here's what some of them would say to that remark, Paul. They would say, uh, that's not my bailiwick. <laughs> I, I don't I don't do that. All I do is war and I win the wars I do, which is poppycock because we hadn't won one for 20 years. Uh, but that that's that's the attitude. Now, I'm not trying to denigrate or deride the military. That's not the way most of them think. But there are enough of them that think that way. Look, Doug MacArthur thought that way. Um, otherwise, uh, 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 American Caesar, William Manchester's book, quite a good book or series. Um, there are people who think that way. And there are people who, whom that calculus comes to mean the ultimate in control, the ultimate in power, the ultimate in military power. Um, that's the only way I can explain it. I mean, it's not a tactical thing that they want the Chinese and the Russians to think there's some batshit crazy people in the Pentagon. Oh, there's some of that. There's some of that. And civilians will be the ones, uh, civilian leadership generally will be the ones who will, you know, rail and cry and scream about this or that, uh, call this military leader an idiot or whatever. But they'll still be the ones who use that politically. And, and uh, you can go back and see how it was used. I mean, there, there was Harry Truman and there was Dwight Eisenhower. And both of them used that fear of nuclear conflict as they negotiated the end of the Korean War in the one case, and as they negotiated their way through the opening stages of the Cold War in other cases. So, yeah, it's exploited. You know, the, the, old, the idea that I've got a crazy guy in the house here, you know, and you don't want him to attack you. <laughs> But uh, but some of the, certainly LeMay wasn't just tactically posing as crazy. He was the guy that dropped bombs on Japan, and he was a crazy psychopath. Now, you're saying that's why civilians control nuclear weapons, but they kind of do and they kind of don't. I, I know in Ellsberg's book, he talks about going to see Dr. Strangelove, the movie, and, and you know where this local commander of a base goes nuts and fires nuclear weapons. Let's go. His tells his jets to go bomb Moscow, and and Ellsberg writes that when they came out of the movie, Ellsberg turned to his colleague who worked with him at Rand Corporation, advising the Pentagon. They looked at each other and said, "That's a documentary," <laughs> because there's there's been such a devolution of the ability to fire that it's not supposed to happen without a civilian order. But in fact, there's a that nuclear suitcase that carries around for the president. If I understand it correctly, to a large extent, that's a bit of theater because if they're like, for example, if a bomb took out the president, the military does have the means to fire nuclear weapons uh, without such a command. Is that not right? Well, the, the, the person in a ballistic missile silo or the person on a ballistic missile submarine, Ohio-class submarine, has the ability to fire the weapons. You just have to believe in the system. You have to believe in Americans. You have to understand that these are pretty talented, intelligent people. Whether it's the skipper of a Ohio-class submarine or the commander of a series of ballistic missile silos, 
an accident like we've had a number of in the past, some of which the American people don't know anything about, um, scares me more than some miscreant person in some silo or on some submarine. But it could happen. That's one reason why we have so many fail-safe systems. I say fail-safe with tongue in cheek. Um, you know, two keys and PALs, permissive action locks on the weapons and so forth and so on. Um, but it's not completely impossible to imagine a rogue firing of something. Um, it, it, it's to me, having been so close to this for so long, um, it's a miracle, a small miracle, a large miracle, however you want to look at it in terms of that we haven't had an accident or a, a miscreant, as you've suggested in somewhere in this linkage that uh, started something. Right. The, the story YouTube recently deleted of ours uh, was an interview with Mikey Weinstein from the Military Religious Freedom Foundation. And it was a story about the, uh, the growth of uh, Christian nationalism, uh, a real right wing a variant of evangelicalism in the military. And he was suggesting it, it's possible as much as a third of the force is now been recruited and that it, that it reaches into very high levels of leadership in the military. Um, if that's true, uh, then how dangerous is that in terms of our, this discussion about the possible, you know, the use of nuclear weapons? I mean, if you have people that actually in theory, at least welcome the apocalypse, uh, what, what, what does that mean in terms of nuclear issues? It's certainly a remote possibility, but I emphasize an underlying remote. I'm more concerned about the linkages that go along with what you and Mikey um, have suggested and others too. And the linkages that truly disturb me are those between the United States and Israel and Israel's nuclear complex. Um, that something might happen in that linkage that would cause an action in the Levant, in the Middle East, that would precipitate a nuclear exchange. Um, while I would like to hope it could be limited, were it to do so, that we could stop it before it got out of hand, that disturbs me more than anything else. And it doesn't disturb me from, this, this is a, this is going to be uh, almost a bizarre thing for me to say to most Americans, um, but I don't think it's bizarre at all. The theocracy is not in Tehran. The theocracy is in Washington. So that's what, and the theocracy is in Jerusalem. And, and the theocracy is growing every hour in Jerusalem. Netanyahu's gone, but the theocracy is still there. The ultra-Orthodox, the others who have really stripped Israel, of all of its democratic credentials and created an apartheid state for all intents and purposes is still there in Jerusalem. And the theocracy is still in Washington, whether it's the national prayer breakfast or General Boykin saying, my God is better than your God or whatever. That scares me more than some miscreant or some misguided Christian dominionist in a silo somewhere. I'm concerned about the Christian dominionist at senior levels of the military. And I should add, I should add to that, you know, when I interviewed Ambassador Joe Wilson, uh, you know, we talked quite a bit about the role of Opus Dei. It's also the far right of the Catholic Church. It's not just the evangelicals that are at very senior levels in Washington. 
get the most interesting development at the Air Force Academy in the last uh, oh, 96 hours or so has been the Catholic choir director there who's written an article that says Catholics are put on the bottom of the totem pole at the Air Force Academy intentionally by the Air Force Academy leadership, which is Protestant, Dominionist, proselytizing evangelical Christians. <laughs> this, this article just blows them away out there. They're torturing Catholics. <laughs> All right, let's go back to where we started with China. Uh, given how, you know, how crazy and irrational much of this military thinking is, um, and, and I don't think it's cr so crazy and irrational in, you know, in the civilian political establishment, although you have people in that political establishment who are calling for drawing a line on Taiwan saying, you know, drop this sort of ambiguous commitment to Taiwan and make it a hard commitment. Uh, which would which would do what if China then decided that they for to save face or for some other reason they actually do want to uh, use military means in Taiwan? Uh, although I, I, I although I have to say it seems to me if the Americans would just shut the hell up about it, the Chinese can wait for all this to happen in a more organic kind of way. The Americans and the and and certain of those on Taiwan. Yeah. Like for example, like like for example, Zhang Wing, the current president, first female, I think, president of Taiwan, um, a descendant, if you will, of Chen Shui-bian, uh, a Hakka minority member, first first uh, such minority member to be president, and making noises and doing things that look like uh, Chen Shui-bian has come back to office. That is to say. In your face, Beijing. Uh, we've seen how you handle Hong Kong. That's the the local, immediate precipitate of our action. But our action is going to be to defy you in every way we possibly can, and we might even have a referendum and vote on independence, et cetera, et cetera. Same thing, Chen Shui-bian brought to my administration with George W. Bush. Uh, smart, in this case, George W. Bush essentially told Donald Rumsfeld and Dick Cheney to shut their damn mouths and quit exciting uh, Taiwan to this sort of position. But right now, the problem to me, exacerbated by us, people like Richard Haas, my old boss at the State Department, saying that strategic ambiguity is gone. It should be clarity now. We should tell the Chinese that if they try to do anything in a forceful way vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan, we will, we will defend Taiwan. That's bull crap. We can't defend Taiwan without exactly what I described to you happening a war that devolves to nuclear weapons. So why would we be doing this? Why would we be just destroying strategic ambiguity? Why would we be bearding the lion in his den? Why would we be helping her to make it look more and more like Taiwan is going to become uh, a, a defiant creature in the Chinese house? Uh, this is not the way to win friends and influence enemies. Not at all. It's a way to start. So, so what's the answer to that? Why is Haas talking this way? Haas represents. I, no I mean, he's a serious player in this development of foreign policy in D.C. What the hell is motivating him to talk like? It's not just him. He's a serious taker of the public coin that comes from the military-industrial complex. Well, too. that's where I'm heading. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, th th these people boggle my mind that they play with these very dangerous elements of U.S. national security policy, and they play with them vouchsafing their credentials in how to do it. And 
what they're really after is more fame and fortune with emphasis on the last ladder. And whether and when it comes to Taiwan, the fortune is there because you get paid about four or five times what you're worth by the Taiwanese structure as you advocate for them on either side of the coin, either side, whether you're looking at the Kuomintang and you're looking at the peaceful relationship more or less between China and Taiwan, or you're looking at the defiant relationship that the party that's currently in power represents. You, you can get paid well on either side of that. And some of them, Paul, some of them work both sides and get paid by both sides. Well, I was, is that really the primary motivating factor with all this posturing that, it, you know, it, it justifies a massive military budget? And, and, I, and I think it's important, your point, too. There's a Chinese military industrial complex. It's in their interest to have tensions, at, you know, at these kinds of levels. I mean, is that really what's driving all this? Because in real strategic terms, it's so nuts that, that I don't even know how you explain it, other than it's about money-making, which is crazy, too. Money-making is at the foot and root of so much of what happens in Washington these days, and for that matter, what happens in Taipei and Beijing, too. But it is about prestige and power, too. And those are the elements that are truly dangerous. You can do something about the you can root out corruption. You can go after this or that uh, corrupt official or whatever. You can identify people the way we're doing right now. But you can't deal with prestige and power and the kind of things that Xi Jinping thinks about when he thinks about his, his legacy and the Chinese mandate in order to fulfill it, you have to have Taiwan back. It's a dangerous situation extremely dangerous situation. And let me add too, that you have to look at Japan in this. What would be the most effective action the United States could take in a strictly pragmatic sense with regard to the current situation in Southeast Asia, Northeast Asia, and particularly the South China Sea, where China has become the hegemon. We are not the hegemon anymore in that region of the world. At best, we can test China's hegemony, and we would lose were we to contest it on a strictly regional basis. We would lose. So what do you do? Well, if you're going to be pragmatic and you're in the Pentagon and you're thinking about it, you're going to unleash Japan. You're going to say to Japan, we no longer guarantee you a nuclear security umbrella. In fact, we no longer feel like the security relationship with you is the way it should be. In other words, we think you should grow up. Think about what China would think about that, how that would change the power calculus in the region. Now we've got an entirely different situation. Now China confronts a country that is capable of building a nuclear complex that could outstrip them in a matter of months, and it's no longer hemmed in, controlled, cajoled, kept right by the United States of America. I'm going back to my conversations with Wang Yi and Shui-Ten Kai with Richard Haas in 2001 when we did policy planning talks. Restraining Japan is looked at by Beijing as a plus. Unleash Japan and see how the, chain, the situation changes in Northeast Asia. 
But it makes it more dangerous. But maybe, maybe it doesn't. Maybe it makes a dangerous balance of power. Maybe it creates a balance of power that isn't there now. The, power, the balance is being destroyed by China. China is becoming more powerful than the United States in that regional context. Well, that's going to happen. Uh, but well, you said something earlier, which I thought was really important. And uh, to me, this is where the focus has to be. Uh, there doesn't there need to be a serious renegotiation of nuclear arms treaties? There has Absolutely. to be. Absolutely. Like without that, this goes to war. I mean, I don't know how we avoid. Uh, like right now, the United States is spending at least a trillion dollars. So is the Russians to modernize their nuclear forces. It's probably going to be well more than Wasted a trillion. Money. Wasted money. And that's part, that's what's spurring the Chinese to, to build up. I mean, and, and it's not even being, am I missing something? I don't even hear the conversation in Washington about uh, beginning a proper new nuclear arms reduction treaty with Russia, China, and the United States to begin with. It's happening to a certain extent. It's happening sort of offline right now. There are people talking about it, the usual people, the arms control people and so forth, but they've been so marginalized. They've been so put down by all this, you know, ABM treaty gone, INF treaty gone. Hey, we might as well just let New START expire too, Donald Trump. Um, they've been so marginalized that I'm not sure their voice is being heard anymore, but it needs to be heard. The other day I was having a conversation with someone, even from that community, who said, how could you multilateralize this? It would never work. Never... You better multilateralize it because there are lots of nuclear powers out there now and you need India and you need Pakistan and you need Israel in this environment. You need them talking about things. You don't just need to pass you know, laws and, and, and treaties like the new uh, nuclear treaty um, that are just figments of someone's imagination. Non-proliferation treaty always was that with regard to the major nuclear powers. Um, our promise to reduce our weapons to zero eventually was just so much smoke and mirrors. We need some real arms control. Forget the smoke and mirrors. We're never going to eliminate nuclear weapons, but we need to manage them and manage them smartly. And we need to get down to the very, very minimum. And I go back to that study we did when Powell was chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. The United States now has around 4,000. We could go down to 300. It would be a much safer world, much less opportunity for accident and so forth. You wouldn't eliminate it completely, but you'd minimize it. And others do the same thing and have a regime that checks on that all the time. As you said, who's working on that right now? Who's working on that? It's one of the number one challenges in the world if we want to survive. And who's working on it? Yeah. In serious terms, nobody. You got it. All right. Thanks for joining me, Larry. Thanks for having me, Paul. Thanks for joining us on the analysis.news. Uh, please don't forget to uh, donate. Uh, sign up to our email list. Uh, if you are watching this on YouTube, uh, which after one week they're going to let us post, but who knows how long till they might close the channel down, uh, which is all the more reason to subscribe to our email list and you'll know how to connect with our website. Uh, that's at theanalysis.news because we're going to keep doing what we're doing. And if YouTube closes us down, well, uh, we're probably going to have a petition campaign. If we can figure out a way to sue Google, we will. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, keep checking out the analysis.news.